For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench, and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the Anshi Spoke Podcast. Today we interviewed a very special human being, Casper Takail. And if you run a community as part of your business, you're going to want to listen to this episode. Casper's mission is to help build a world of joyful belonging. He studies community and spirituality and connects people and co-creates projects that help us live lives of greater connection, meaning, and depth. He is the author of The Power of Ritual. You all need to go out and buy that book right now, and the co-host of the award-winning podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. He is also a Ministry Innovation Fellow at Harvard Divinity School and co-founded the startup Sacred Design Lab, which is a research and design consultancy working to create a culture of belonging and becoming. I learned so much about us as humans, our need for connection and spirituality, and it was just so illuminating to take his work and apply it to the work of all of us who are in wellness, who have communities on the internet as part of our online programs. I promise you he will be a repeat guest. Casper, we're coming for you again. Let me introduce you to the amazing Casper Takal. So welcome, Casper, to the show. This has been a long dream of mine to have you on our podcast. So welcome. I'm so honored, Jenny. It's so good to see you again, Sandy. So great to meet you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited. This is going to be a good one. So Casper, I think we should just tell the listeners that we know each other because we met six years ago in a summer internship program with Seth Godin. And so that's how we know each other. So you're a very special person to me. I feel like we are deeply connected from that experience, even though it was so long ago. It was so wild. And it was just a week, but it was so deep. And I know I felt so lucky. I'm sure you felt the same to have this experience with like a master in his field. And I was so curious about what it'd be like. And basically what we did all day was sit around his kitchen table and he would tell stories and then he would make us lunch and then we'd talk and then he'd tell more stories. And I just had like 800 pages of notes that week that I look back at sometimes. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so much there. So. And didn't he host it in his own like work condo in New York City? City. Is that where it was? Yeah. And it, but it was his space. So like he has a very funny sense of humor. So the whole space is like decorated with the weirdest stuff that you could imagine. Like donkey, like posters with fake crying, like monkeys on top of them. I I don't know. It was wild. (laughs) 
but it meant that we were just really allowed inside his brain. And I feel like Jenny, you and I were, were forged in fire in that kind of context. It was, it was very special. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It is, it is a defining moment of my life for sure. And I would say, I feel like when I got the acceptance into that experience, it was, it definitely felt like winning the lottery. I felt like right. this is my, this is like this, one of those things that doesn't really happen to people and it happened. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, it was so good. And I also remember we connected so deeply because we both had the same shared background in climate activism too. Absolutely. Yeah. That was really my first kind of professional life. I grew up in England. My parents are both Dutch, but I was born in England and I had very, very privileged upbringing in all sorts of ways. But I, classic experience of the teenager who wants to suck it to the man. I, de- <laughs> I definitely got really involved in a couple of justice issues, but climate change really being the central one, because I started to see the connection between every issue that I cared about and the potential and very real now impact of climate change, whether it's on human rights, whether it's on trade, whether it's on war and peace, whether it's on, I mean, just about anything you want to name, honestly, it's, it's just such a, a system changer. And so I got really passionate about mobilizing young people to take action on climate and to try and influence the international negotiations at the UN. And part of my kind of journey professionally has been understanding some of the limitations of what I was trying to do. You know, I was an activist. I was trying to change people's, you know, decision makers' opinions on what policies to implement. I was learning about politics, right? You need what really changes things is power. And either you win that at the ballot box or you have it with money. And I started to realize that even within that frame, we wouldn't really get to the place that we need to be on climate because it's not just a politics or a policy question, it's a paradigm question. It's how do we understand ourselves to be in relationship with the world that we live in? Is it a resource for us to use and manipulate? Or are we actually part of an ecosystem that needs to be healthy completely? And so I I just got really, really interested in thinking about culture change as a strategy to sit alongside political change. And so suddenly as like a gay atheist, I found myself in divinity school, (laughs) which was a surprise for everyone. I, lo- I love that you went to divinity school. You did a what? <laughs> so that is a perfect segue into your book, Casper. So this book is, first of all, I posted this in our community last night because usually we don't share who's coming on the show and, and the resources until the episode is released. And I just, as I was going back through your book, I thought, I don't want to wait another minute to share this book with our community and to recommend it and to sort of give it my highest seal of approval because it's one of the top books I've read in years and definitely in the top three. And I would just say it was so meaningful to me to because I know you a bit and to read your book was... It was such a beautiful... It's such a beautiful experience to read your thinking around what it means to have community and what it means to have ritual in your life. So could you just share a little bit more about the book and what led you to write it? Yeah. So it's called The Power of Ritual. And what I'm really interested in fundamentally is that sense of how are we connected to ourselves, to one another, to the natural world, like I was just saying, and to then a sense of something bigger than ourselves, a sense of transcendence. And I think a lot of us are grappling with these questions. More and more of us are less and less religious. So we're not finding the traditional church or the the synagogue or the mosque way in which people might explore these questions. And yet at the same time, I at least experience, and I think many people around me, still experience that hunger for something deeper, something that has a real sense of weight and truth. But we're not willing to go within, you know, whether it's a Catholic church or whatever, which has so many problems, especially for women, LGBT people, right? Folks who've been marginalized in some way. So in that context, I started to think about the ways in which ancient rituals, ancient traditions can be reinvented in our contemporary context. And not to make it an arduous, difficult challenge, but to start instead by looking at things we're already doing every day, right? The bath that we take on a Friday night, the glass of wine at the end of a COVID day, the walk with the dog every morning, turning off our phone during dinner, all of these little things that we're already doing that to me represent a kind of a little bud and that with some intention and rigor, those little buds can really flower into rich rituals in our lives. And those rituals are not just there to, to decorate our experience of life, but that they shape us, that they help us to live a certain way. That famous saying of the way we live our days is the way we love our lives. And so building in or really recognizing those rituals that are already important to us, they get to shape our experience of who we are and how we live and embody the values that are important to us. 
So it's really a, a sort of manifesto for thinking about ritual in our own lives, finding those places that have an opportunity to become a ritual, and then to connect those with our deepest longings of connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, it was so interesting to me in your book too, is like how that honoring of ritual or that acknowledgement of ritual also allows us to connect to each other, right? Like that oh, that's also the process where we connect and understand that we're all one for lack of a better yeah. phrase. Yeah. And to the earth, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to the planet. Yeah. I had never put that together. It makes me think of like, there's such a rise in witchcraft and interest in witchcraft and it, it's all connected back to the seasons, right? And so we see a lot of our clients doing in that work and it's like for hundreds of years, we've sort of lived our lives by the cycles of the, the moon right. and the sun and we just, modern day has just lost that. So, so interesting that you've picked that up. I got so obsessed with rhythm. Sandy, it's so fun that you picked up on that because I think one of the ways that we can think about what a healthy life looks like is a life that has rhythm. And whether it's the rhythm of the seasons, the rhythm of work and rest, I got really interested in the practice of Sabbath, for example, and even just thinking about the rhythm of community life, right? The times when we come together, the times when we're apart, that actually we live in this conception that life is this singular linear process of hopefully constant improvement and otherwise you're failing, which is an impossible standard, which is going to make us all feel so shitty and surprise, surprise, it does versus a conception of life and time itself being circular and cyclical. And so that just as we move through the seasons, actually, that's also how we move through seasons of our different moods, seasons of feeling connected and inspired. And then guess what? There's going to be seasons when we don't. And if we don't make space for that, we're just going to make ourselves feel worse. Religious traditions do have really some wisdom about this. In the Christian liturgical calendar, you have seasons like Advent and Lent and and Christmas and Easter. But then also for much of the year, it's called ordinary time because nothing special is happening, right? Or if you look at the Jewish calendar, after seven years, the land is given time to rest. And after 49 years, seven times seven, there's this great redistribution of wealth where borders are redrawn of landowners. So we can't end up in this huge wealth disparity that we have now because there's this cycle of time which brings us back to one another every 49 years. So I just think it's such a beautiful invitation for us to think differently about our own individual wellness, the wellness of the community, the wellness of the land that we're on when we're living within that kind of rhythm. Yeah, I feel like... For me, the seasonality and the rhythm that I have most connected with in my life, it's I'm sort of ashamed to say this, but it's sort of like the academy. I really loved school and I I like forever because of there were times of like intense work and then there was they were followed by real breaks. And I feel like adulthood post academia, like there's no place where we are culturally supposed to take those kinds of breaks. And I find that really challenging as a person who operates with some level of ambition. <laughs> I mean, really, you just love stationery, right, Jenny? I mean, that's what, that's what like True. late August is True. all about for me. <laughs> but it is that season of like preparation and like, yes. I get to start again oh and it's God. a new notebook. And I love, right? <laughs> I love, I love everything about them. I have four planners. <laughs> but it's real. It's very real because mm-hmm. each one of those seasonal moments is an invitation to step back in. And I love what you said, which is we can't keep having beginnings if we don't have endings. And so that's another part of what the school year offers, right? Is like, okay, now we're stopping and we're taking this break. And then we, we know we're going to come back. And there's a safety, honestly, in that circularity because it's always going to come back. It actually doesn't need us to make it happen. All we need to do is to stay in rhythm and to observe that sense of time. So it's a wonderful way of like depersonalizing the pressure and it's all on you to make things happen all the time. It's like, no, people figured this out. Like, let's enjoy the ride. (laughs) You know, Casper, I'd love to hear your thoughts about COVID because Mm. all of that is all messed up right now. And like, for me, there's always this like thing to look forward to, like the beginning of the school year, like Jenny just said, or Christmas or holidays or whatever. And I think for us here in Canada, when we we locked down in March, there was no end date. It was just like a pool of emptiness and there was no end. There's nothing to look forward to. And that uncertainty was so like psychologically disturbing. 
You're speaking my language, a hundred percent. I think I'm somewhat like you, Sandy. It sounds like I love having something to look forward to, and that's yes. what having the next thing, right? Like whether it's a, a holiday that we're going to be celebrating, or a trip that I'm going on, or a project that I'm working on. Uh, that I'm such a, a forward-oriented person that I found COVID really tough, and I think that disturbance of our sense of time is one of the ways it's been so disorienting is that we don't have that rhythm. So I've had to try really hard to find ways to reinterpret or reimagine things that I would usually be doing with other people or in a different place and find some way to do it at home. So Okay, wait, my, wait, wait. Yeah. Casper. So I was yeah. doing a little research on you. And I'm like, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go to his Instagram. <laughs> I was going to say exactly that. And I was like, what? What? What is what is this? <laughs> I thought it would be about your book. I thought it would be about other things. I'm like, I don't understand this guy. What's happening here? Tell us what's happening well, what, on your Instagram right now. What you found, Sandy, is exactly uh, is exactly this. Every day I'm posting one of my favorite Christmas carols because every year my husband and I around Christmas time we celebrate with a black tie Christmas carol sing along spectacular party. And we go all in. So like people are really coming in gowns and tuxes. Sean bakes for like three days. So there's piles of cakes and incredible, like amazing baked goods, like Great British Baking Show, eat your heart out. And then because he trained as a classical singer, so we've got a bunch of friends who are wonderful musicians. We have all sorts of friends come and we sing through our personally curated Christmas carol book. And so what I realized was like, well, obviously we can't bring people together into a enclosed space and sing together as we usually would, light the candles on the Christmas tree and everything else. So I thought, well, let's get a small group together, one on each part, four voices, and everyone will get tested. We'll do the quarantine thing. And we got together on a Sunday afternoon. We sang through all the carols in fabulous gowns and tuxes. And then I'm posting one every day. So it's, it's a way for me to try and hold on to the, the spirit of what that moment is about, which is about, I love seeing the moment when someone walks into the party and they're like, oh, I didn't know this was possible. This looks like a movie. And all it was is that we spent some time decorating and baking and getting dressed up and, and setting the stage for a gathering that feels special and different. And so I've, I've tried to find a way to do that on Instagram. So everyone can learn the carols and you should come over next year. <laughs> oh, that's something to look forward to. Big time. Yes, exactly. But I think it illustrates those broader themes of like, okay, some things are not possible. What is the essence of what this gathering was about? Priya Parker talks about this so beautifully in her book, The Art of Gathering. What's the purpose of the gathering in the first place? And can you find a different way to celebrate or lift up that purpose or embody it in some way? Okay. Well, Casper, I think our listeners and our audience need to hear your take on the role that fitness classes and wellness classes and group yes. classes like SoulCycle and CrossFit gyms play in sort of shaping a shaping community. I think your critique yeah. on this is so powerful. So I'd love you to share a bit about it. So my interest in, in the world of fitness and generally the kind of well-being culture really came out of our research when my colleague Angie Thurston and I were students at Harvard Divinity School. And the question we were exploring was, in this age when more and more people are less and less religious, where are folks going to find that sense of meaningful community? And we did hundreds of interviews and over and over again, we were surprised to hear people talking about their CrossFit gym, about their bar class, about their soul cycle spin class, about these fitness communities that ostensibly were there because people want to get in shape or lose weight or get stronger. But as anyone who runs a studio of whatever it is will know, people come for one thing, but they will stay for the community. That that sense of that this is my place, these are my people, I belong here, that's why people keep coming back. And so we started to see more and more examples of this, where people were hosting their goodbye barbecue in the CrossFit box before they moved to Ohio, where people were doing fundraisers for someone in the class who's been there for 12 years and has been diagnosed with breast cancer, where people were looking after each other's dogs because someone's going away to visit their mom. All of these behaviors that on the face of it, just look like nice community behaviors. But to us, with this religious lens on, looking through our kind of divinity school glasses, to us, it looked like what happens in a religious congregation. So we started to think about these communities, not just as fitness classes or even just communities, but actually as, as spiritual or religious congregations. And particularly with CrossFit and SoulCycle, which became the objects of our study, we started to see a lot of those echoes. So 
at SoulCycle, the clue is in the name, right? <laughs> SoulCycle. And so whether it's the kind of liturgical nature of the class, right? This 45 minute spin class, which is intensely focused on moving you through an emotional journey, just like a worship service is, um, where there are moments of kind of private confession or meaning making reflection, like who are you writing for today? What do you want to let go of? Right. This is, people aren't just sitting there sweating and working out. This is a moment of personal transformation. That sense that you're riding as part of a, a pack, right? That sense of a collective effervescence, right? That there's something happening together which you can't achieve on your own. All of those were very, very religious overtones in the soul cycle space. And at CrossFit, you know, some of the workouts are named after soldiers or police officers who've been killed in the line of battle. So there's this memorializing of the dead. There's the CrossFit Games where the faithful gather in a pilgrimage every year to kind of get together and, and lift up the virtues of the community. So the more we started to look, the more we saw those connections. And what that raised for us was two things. One, what an incredible opportunity for these communities to really understand that and build that in intentionally, because it's not always done with intention. But secondly, that it comes with enormous responsibilities, right? If you're a fitness coach and you're sleeping with your clients, no longer is that just risky business, but I think it's an ethical violation of a relationship of spiritual care if we're starting to see it through a religious frame. If we start thinking about these spaces, not just as secular, normal spaces, but as the place that you go and we saw countless examples of this, right? One woman texting her soul cycle instructor on a Sunday saying, should I divorce my husband? These are questions that you would ask a pastor or a priest or someone, of you know, guidance way beyond how do I lose these extra pounds? So it adds all of these additional responsibilities on the leaders of these communities that I don't think are always really understood. So how much of this is intentional? How, like, I'm so curious about the transition. Like, when did exercise or group group exercise become religious? Like, how did that happen culturally? Or is it just like, we are so hardwired and innate that that is whatever we do, it's going to land there anyway? I think that's a great point, Sandy, because I think for a lot of the communities, it wasn't necessarily intentional but it kept happening. And so as you say, Sandy, I totally agree with you that there's something innate about what it means to be human, that we orient ourselves around purpose and meaning and something bigger than ourselves. And it just happens that these are the places where people are going. And so that's where this is happening. It's not just fitness communities. The workplace is another place in which folks are bringing this sense of purpose, meaning, and a desire for community way beyond what they're actually achieving in terms of like hitting certain targets or whatever. So the workplace is also a space in which more and more kind of religious stuff is happening. But I do think there are a couple of brands or organizations that really picked up on it. And SoulCycle was one, as I said, the clue is in the name. We ended up becoming very friendly with two of the co-founders, Julie Rice and her partner, Elizabeth, a business partner. They very intentionally wanted to create a space in which people could connect with that sense of their essence. They wouldn't necessarily use religious language. But Elizabeth talks about the fact that they were putting crystals like underneath the cycling podium of the first couple of studios. So they were really thinking about this as a space that would have some sense of depth and intentionality way beyond just what the element of fitness at first. So to me, it suggests that often we think about religion declining, certainly in America and generally the West. But for me, it's really a question of religion changing, that where it's happening and what it looks like and the language that we're using for it that's changing because it's just part of, of who we are as human beings. Can you talk more about the responsibility? Sorry, Jenny, we're both like jumping over each other to talk, to ask questions. <laughs> the intention and then the responsibility. Is there a mm. moment in time where people who build this are like, oh my God, what have I done? We see this in our clients where they're yeah. like, there's like these boundary issues, like they're coming oh, at yeah. me all times, you know, throughout the day, throughout the week. And I can't like, there's this moment like, oh my God. What's happened? Are you kidding? Absolutely. This is what we learn in divinity school is that if you are going to be a religious leader, you will be set apart from the community. And that's honestly why we have something like ordination, right? It's to recognize that you are serving this community, but you are no longer of this community. And I think a lot of people will start, uh, whether it's a yoga studio or whatever it is, because they have a love for yoga. They want to share it. They want to build a community. They feel connected to their place and the people. And then after about three or four years, something has shifted and it's actually no longer for them and it becomes incredibly draining. And that's why you see burnout happen so fast because what is happening is that you are serving them and you are no longer of them. 
And in, unless that's recognized, and I would say formalized in some way, then it is going to feel so complex in terms of those boundaries, because people don't fully understand who you are, what your role is. Are you their friend? Like, can we meet up for dinner? Like all of those really tricky boundaries you have to keep figuring out. And that's what religious communities to some extent have tried to figure out by saying, okay, you're here to lead this community. We're going to authorize you. And by the way, that means you need some sort of training. You need accountability. You need support. All sorts of things that if you're a business owner who set up an amazing health and well-being community, you don't necessarily have that kind of support. You might have, how do you run a good business, right? How do you think about a marketing strategy? But no one's there to help you figure out how do you deal with what people project onto you? How do you deal with the sudden ethical expectations that people have of you and your business in the community? We don't have those systems yet. That's, as I think about what the future of religious and spiritual life will look like, those are the kind of things that folks are going to need in order to be responsible and effective community leaders and business owners. Does that make sense? Business Sandy? idea I, for you right there. Yeah, yeah. that's a great business idea. I just think that there's like some training there. Like this yes. needs to be a course. This needs to be a discussion because people are struggling. It's breaking people. It is. And my heart breaks mm-hmm. to know that because what we're seeing is people stepping into this with enthusiasm and then burning out within five years. Mm-hmm. With the best of intentions. Of the and fitness space. With the best of intentions. Absolutely. And health and fitness is one space in which this is happening. The creativity, social justice space, maker spaces, all sorts of new communities are popping up. A lot of them can't figure out the financial model, which thank God, mostly health and fitness folks can. But there are so many issues that you have to deal with because you're no longer just a a business owner or a fitness instructor. You're essentially a sort of spiritual coach. And that brings a whole new depth of issues, projections, challenges, and richness. But we have to know how to do it well. Yeah, I mean, I think as the economy is shifting and we've moved more and more away from the traditional workforce, I feel like anyone in a leadership role is really facing these same challenges, which is basically what you're saying, Casper. And I think that we don't have these larger institutional structures that we rise up within anymore to give us the mentorship and the coaching and the training that we need to be leaders. And leadership means something different now than it did before. That's right. Yeah, you're essentially, I mean, the the language that I use in my work with my team at Sacred Design Lab, we talk about soul-centered questions, right? So I'm not coming to you as a leader to help me figure out how do I do the spreadsheet or what's the technical way in which I can convince this person to do X, but it's like, how do I help this community grow a sense of respect and love for one another? How do I navigate the political polarization? How do I be authentic and yet really smart about engaging anti-racism in our space? Right? Like these are big ass questions that are way beyond (laughs) your usual training. And yeah, in my language and my paradigm, I think about them as spiritual and religious questions because they go to the deepest part of who we are and what is at stake in our lives. When you bring this topic up to those that are leading in the fitness spaces and you make that parallel between you're just like a priest or a pastor, do, pe- some, do people go, ah, no, right. I don't. Like, what's the reaction to that, to that parallel? I'd say there's two reactions. One absolutely is that I don't want that. I didn't ask for that. Ah, But the other one that we've seen, and this one happens honestly more often is, oh my God, thank God. I thought it was just uh, me and that I was failing somehow. It, it's so often a relief. Something's wrong with me. Yes, I've been doing it wrong. I didn't get it. I've been making mistakes. To kind of shift that and say, oh, actually, it's because the system, the context has changed, that my role has new responsibilities that I just didn't understand. That honestly is more often the case, that it's a thoughtful or a sort of reliefful reaction of like, oh my gosh, oh, I understand more about why this is happening. It doesn't always mean that people are happy with that, right? It's like, I still didn't ask for it. I just still didn't sign up for it. But at least it makes more sense about why it feels so weird or difficult when I'm a competent person, like I know how to do things. That's the pattern that we've seen. And and often, you know, for those who are ready to embrace it, there's a real hunger then for like, okay, well, how can I connect with mentors and elders? How do I learn about this? Because you can only lead other people as far as you've gone yourself. So there's a real invitation then for people to deepen their own, whether it's a set of spiritual practices, whether it's a context of, of community and accountability in which they can them, themselves grow. There's a huge need for that right now. Where do folks get that? Where do you, when people come to you, Casper, where do you send them? <laughs> so this Casper is where a new consulting I'm, business. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can visit sacred.design. It's not, it's not, it's not what we do, but we don't do that personal one-on-one thing. But what mm-hmm. we are trying to build is that infrastructure. 
So Mm -hmm. what are the set of institutions and services, essentially, that are going to need to be in place to fulfill that? And the interesting thing is, and this might be a little challenging for people to engage with, but the interesting thing is that some religious denominational leaders who understand that the traditional congregation is no longer fit for purpose, culturally and often not financially, they understand, oh, that's our job now. So, for example, we had a meeting at SoulCycle where we literally heard that story about the woman texting her instructor saying, should I divorce my husband? Our next meeting was with a woman who worked at the largest Jewish denomination in America, the Union for Reform Judaism, very progressive, uh, very engaged in, in great stuff, very social justice oriented. And we told her that story. And her name's Leora Kay, fabulous friend. Her first reaction was, oh my God, that's so depressing. And within two seconds, and I give her so much credit for this, she was like, huh? We should be training soul cycle instructors how to officiate weddings and offer marriage counseling. And I was like, that's exactly right, right? Because that tradition has so much to say about how do you form healthy relationships? How do you mark changes in life stage, birth, death, and marriage? How do you think about adult development, about community? So one answer to your question is, I actually think it might be traditional religious institutions who understand a changing role or a changing job that needs to be done. And at the same time, Part of the change in our culture is that a lot of us are no longer identifying with a particular religion, certainly not with a denomination. A lot of interfaith, mixed faith families, people who go hiking to connect with nature, use headspace, and also go on a a psychedelic retreat once every three years, right? There's more and more people who, who are kind of putting together their own spiritual life so that one institution is never going to feel like it's their home. So there's also a challenge to think about how can we build an infrastructure or a set of support institutions that are no longer limited by a particular identity, or that might be grounded in it, but are open to think beyond it. And those are some of the questions that we end up working with, with our religious partners in our work. But I'll tell you one more story, which is that one group of people who have been braver and more imaginative than any other in the religious space are a set of old Catholic nuns, women who in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and you know, there used to be like 400,000 nuns in America, and now there's like 40,000, and the average age is, is 73. So they are so clear that their expression of what religious life looked like is over. They're not trying to rescue it. They're not trying to force anything. They're like, our way of life is dying. What we want to do is to support the new things that are happening and give it all the wisdom and experience and generosity that we can. And so there's this beautiful project called Nuns and Nuns. So N-U-N-S for the Catholic nuns, and then N-O-N-E-S for people who are religious nuns, meaning they're unaffiliated with anything. When they're asked, what's your identity? They say, none of the above. That's where that word comes from. So these nuns and nuns groups have been bringing these non-religious kind of secular millennials together with these aging Catholic sisters who've spent decades serving as teachers, nurses, helping people in AIDS wards, being champions against the death penalty. I mean, amazing work, some of them. And they have found such a friendship across those kind of expected divides. It gives me great hope to think about, wow, when people are are really rooted in what they have to give, but not attached to what it looks like in the future, there is an amazing potential for how ancient wisdom can find shape in, in our emerging context. I love that. So is that the website, Nuns and Nuns, where people can go to learn more about that? Yes, I should know the actual website. Let me <laughs> No, we'll check. put it, yeah. we'll make sure we have it in the show notes. I love that. On one of the islands nearby, a neighboring island to where I live, there's a group of nuns that live and farm there and just are yes. quietly living in existence. And it's just this comfort to know that they're there. You know, it's just... It's lovely. So I have a question for you. Would you consider Burning Man like a religious pilgrimage? Oh, are you kidding? A hundred percent. And the funny thing is, places like Burning Man and others, CrossFit was another one. When you ask people, describe what Burning Man means to you. People will be like, oh, it's like a cult or, oh, it's like my annual pilgrimage. I mean, they will use the words themselves. So it's not a stretch. From the moment you arrive, right, you have a ceremony to enter the playa, right? Do you roll around in dust? Do you get completely naked? Whatever it is, that's a transition marker, classical ritual moment. You have the different economy that lives there. There are so many ways in which Burning Man is a kind of prototypical example of, of a religious, secular crossover space. And of course, at the very heart of the experience is the temple. And it's such an interesting example of engaging with physical space that is made sacred. Because people come to the temple, they leave wishes or offerings or goodbyes or intentions in this space. And what was just a 
a large amount of wood in a beautiful shape becomes somehow holy. For me, it illustrates one of the profound lessons I really learned from divinity school, which is that I used to think that either things were sacred or secular because like some grandfather God in the sky said so. And it's like, no, that's not it. The way I understand what is sacred is when we make it sacred, right? When we bring that sense of devotion, when we bring that sense of of intentionality, of care, that's actually what makes things sacred. So that sacred isn't a noun, but it's a verb. It's a way of being that we get to bring. And what makes those nuns so special is that they have spent decades cultivating that particular way of being. And by the way, living the hours, right, in a community where you have to get up a certain time, pray at a certain time, eat at a certain time, goes back to what you were saying, Sandy, about rhythm. You know, those people have just really cultivated that sense of of making sacred in the world that I just find, I don't know, makes me weepy. I, I just love them so much. <laughs> but what about the priests and the pastors and typically the male leaders of the church? Oh. Are they like, do not compare me to a soul cycle instructor? A lot of do them, not yes. do that? A lot of them, yes. Yeah, I mean, listen, I am the first person to acknowledge the horrific, awful things that have happened in religious institutions. And there is so much set up in those systems. And I mean, to talk about, we've talked about a beauty of the Catholic tradition, let's talk about a challenge. I mean, the idea of, of not allowing priests to marry, first of all, not allowing women to get to get ordained, and then secondly, the kind of the celibacy rule within the Catholic Church, that comes from hundreds of years ago, people not wanting to pay for wives and children of priests. It had nothing to do with theology. It was a power move and a control move around economics. So I really don't want to paint an overly rosy picture of these institutions because they are deeply screwed. And I think what often happens when we speak with people who are in leadership in a, in a church or a synagogue or religious leader of some sort who has some vision, there's often just a sadness. Their way of talking about or creating rituals around or inviting people in is just so far away from the cultural language and experience of people who, who are not religious, right? When I walk into a building and there are pews, I'm like, what the hell are we doing? Why am I looking at someone's back of their head? I want to be in a <laughs> circle, right? I want to see and feel connected to the people around me. So there's so much that's just ingrained in those literal spaces and structures that it kind of makes it irrelevant how good or bad you as an individual leader are because it's the chasm culturally between religious and secular folk at this point is so big that they literally don't use the same words. If you hear someone say evangelism and discipleship, I'm like, that's <laughs> that makes no sense to someone who's thinking about well-being and wholeness and integrated mind-body-spirit, right? Like those are just very, very different paradigms. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Casper, you need to tell us about your podcast. Yes. Well, this really picks up on what we were talking about with the idea of making sacred. So I co-host a podcast with my dear friend, Vanessa Zoltan, called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And we started off, again, the way that I talk about in the book, to think about going ritual spotting. So we were really interested in this idea of, can you read a secular text in a way that people engage with sacred texts? And I kept seeing people using the Harry Potter books as a source of comfort you know, when someone had passed away or they'd broken up with their boyfriend or girlfriend or something was difficult, they would turn towards these books. Or just every summer, they reread all seven books. It was kind of like a ritual every summer. And so the Harry Potter fandom, of course, is famous for being very generative, right? There's musicals and art and fan fiction, of course. It's a very creative, loving community. So we thought, can we turn towards these books, not just as entertainment, but as sources of wisdom and guidance in our own lives? Can we offer a way of engaging with text that will help people reflect on their own life? And so what we do every episode, we read a chapter, we talk about it through a particular theme, something like justice or revenge, or we just did one on chaos or love, so that it kind of shapes the direction of the conversation. But what really makes the way that we engage with the text sacred is that we use traditional sacred reading practices, either from Christianity and Judaism, and what that means is, for example, one of my favorites is called Lectio Divina, which just means sacred reading in Latin. And it's basically this kind of four-step process through which you engage a piece of text. So you choose a sentence or, a, or even a word, and you kind of take that and look at it in these four reflective steps. And the first one is very simple. You just read it narratively, like what's going on in the story. This is how we usually read a book, right? Like to understand the plot. But then you move to a second step, and this time you read it again, but you ask yourself, what allegorical images come to mind? Are there movies or books or poems or songs, anything that I'm reminded of 
by this particular piece of text. And what it does, it kind of expands our imagination. Like it just opens our, and it could be completely random. It doesn't have to be logical, but you're really trying to, to exercise your kind of imagination. And there was a wonderful 14th century monk called Guijo II who kind of wrote these four steps down. And he describes it as putting a grape into your mouth and biting into it. And this explosion of taste happens. You're feeling like the full grapiness of this sentence is kind of exploding in your mouth. But then come my favorite two steps. The third one invites us to think, okay, read that sentence again and ask, is there something in your own life that you're reminded of from this text? So we're no longer reading the text for itself. We're reading it as a mirror for our own experience. We're using the text as a sort of kind of a model through which we get to interpret our own life. And so suddenly things will come up for you where you're like, oh, I haven't thought about it in a long time, or this really struck me because I've been struggling with that particular question. And then the fourth and final question, traditionally, Guijo would say, what is God asking you through the text? The way that we ask that question on the podcast is, what is the text inviting me to do? So what action can I take having gone through this reflection process with the text? What can I do? And so when we engage with texts like this, it's that process of making sacred, right? We have the rigor of the practice, the community that gathers together to read it. So it's not just Vanessa and myself. We always have a voicemail from a listener. So we're getting different voices, different perspectives in there. Because you can get a little bit too isolated if you're just doing this by yourself all the time. You need, you need to be stretched out. So we have that discipline, the community, and then we're always trying to orient ourselves towards a loving engagement with the world. So there's the kind of directionality to the reading. So that's what we've been doing now four and a half years. And we're about to finish book seven, last book in the series. And honestly, the best part of this whole process is how the listeners have not just engaged with us, but with each other. And there's more than a hundred local groups where people get together to read. When COVID hit, people formed a podcast listeners mutual aid fund. So thousands of dollars were exchanged between listeners to support one another. Lots of fundraising around issues that we care about. It's a sign for me of a healthy community when a community isn't just for itself, but it's oriented around serving others. And that's something that has just been an honor to see within this new little sacred reading mm. podcast community. Have any of your community asked you if they should get divorced or not? I will, I will tell you, it definitely, you know, we kind of stepped in consciously thinking of ourselves as, as chaplains to our audience. And so, oh yes, and many other questions. I mean, when we do live shows, people are in line and want to share a story about a really difficult time that they went through in the way in which the podcast helped them or a particular challenge or celebration that they're in right now. And it is, yeah, we kind of step into those moments very conscious of that role. I mean, you must know, right? When I listen to podcasts as well, I feel like I know them mm -hmm. because I listen to them every week. So it's this weird kind of imagined friendship, mm -hmm. but of course it's not quite a friendship, but there is a relationship. So it's a, yeah, it is a really interesting experience. Can you just explain to someone who did not go to divinity school, this idea of reading text, you can apply those four steps to anything? That's a great question. Of course you can, but does it work? Or is it because is there a special level of mm -hmm. something in, in the way that she wrote that this works? Like, could I just take any romance novel and do this? <laughs> well, Sandy, <laughs> Vanessa and I have real questions about that because... Vanessa says, like, no, there is something about the mm, text. That's what I would right? think. Like, and Harry Potter, in many ways, is, is a great text to do it with because it engages questions of good and evil and of friendship and betrayal and of love and family and loss. Right? Grief is all over that book. So in some ways, you could say, yes, you need a certain kind of story that can hold those themes to do it with. I honestly am a little bit more on the side of, I think it's worth trying with a cereal box. Like, it's so much about our projection and our experience that we bring to the text that I think there's definitely like some will be better than others, but I don't want to say that you can't do it with a phone book or, well, I mean, a phone book would really be hard, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, I if think you it's find really, one. yeah, exactly. No, that's a good point these days. I think it's really about you figuring out for yourself, what is a text that I trust to hold these kind of questions that I'm going to ask? So it, I don't want to set the limit of where that is, but I think people can figure out for themselves. Yeah, actually, you know, for me, You've Got Mail is totally a film in which I can do that with because I've watched that movie so often since I was 14 that it means so much to me. Am I going to do it with like Godfather 2? Probably not. And that's fine. But I think it's a very empowering thing to think about like, 
actually we can find sacred texts in all sorts of places. So it's, it's not the text that makes it sacred. It's our engagement with it that makes it sacred. And on that, I am very strict. Like that needs real structure. You know, I don't want people to think this is just like a loosey goosey. Oh, just read whatever you want and it's sacred and it's nice. Like, no, it takes real discipline to do it in community, to have structures and rhythm to how you do it. So it's just changing where the boundaries are. There's still boundaries, but it's not about what text it is. It's about how we read it. I think you can probably tell, Sandy, if you have a book that you have a deep connection to, it's probably a good book to try this on. I remember being a teenager and carrying Walden around in my pocket. Like I had this yes. dog-eared used paperback copy of Walden. And that was very much like a biblical experience for me to read Walden as a young woman. So I think we probably already kind of subconsciously know which texts we have this kind of relation to. But I love the idea of the structure. I mean, I loved hearing you explain it just now on the podcast, Casper, and I loved reading your explanation of it in your book too. Mm, Thanks, Jenny. (laughs) I'm just so excited about these practices because in some ways they've been made kind of invisible or they're kind of hidden from us. Even religious people won't often know some of these ways in which to engage with text. And I just think of them as our kind of inheritance, right? That we get to, we get to use and adapt and and imagine new ways of applying these practices. That just gets me so excited. (laughs) Well, I think it's time to dive into the joy and hustle in the episode. So Casper, if you could share with our listeners something that's bringing you tremendous joy in your life right now, I'm so excited to hear what that's going to be. And also a tool or a resource that can help them hustle in their careers or business. Honestly, a place that always brings me joy is RuPaul's Drag Race. If you're not yet watching, you have at this point, like at least 12 seasons plus some extra seasons to enjoy. It's reality TV show, sure, but it's about drag. And I actually think drag has its own sort of like spiritual overtones because so much of it is about imagining a character and allowing yourself to kind of live into a different way of being with, you know, the help of makeup and wigs and clothes. But really, it's about like bringing a certain essence out into the world. And when you see the incredible ways of being that these drag queens bring to the show, I just think it's like inspiring as well as a joyful ice cream accompaniment when you just want to like zone out from the real world. So I'm a big drag race fan. Can I just say that I just finished watching for the one for Canada? It's one season. Yes. Is it separate? It's like a different yes. one. It's a spin-off. Yes. 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 Brooklyn Heights host. It's amazing. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I watched many, many of the American one. It's so funny that you say that because I don't have anyone I can talk about this to, except for you, Jenny. <laughs> but I love watching them. And there is something like the talent that they have to have to be able to act and sing and be funny and host and character and the walk. I don't know what the lady's name was. She was like the model in Canada. Oh, like she, yes. Yeah, she yeah, taught yeah. them how to walk. She's amazing. That, and I like walk around the house, like trying to be like a drag queen, you know, try to get that model walk, runway walk down. It's so funny. And I just, there is something about them that they have to transform and bring to life. And it is so brave to me to be able, and so multi-talented. That's exactly I'm in it. awe of them. Yeah. Stacey McKenzie is the judge. And I mean, that's exactly right. Brave is the word because I think it takes huge guts to be able to like just create something that you then have to first of all present to be judged but even also to like play with something that's so essentialist as gender in our current culture that that's changing thank goodness but but there is such a boldness of saying like this is the the characterization or the, the person or the yeah the way of being that i want to present and I'm just going to do it. There's a fearlessness mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I love I love that we're in the same boat. I was sad that <laughs> Lemon lost, but okay. I, and she was great. She was great. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I kind of hijacked that. Let's hear your hustle. <laughs> okay. So this is a slightly weird one, but I really believe in, this is something that we learned from Seth, Jenny. Like he really focuses on the structure of how meetings happen. Mm-hmm. And some of them are like little hacks, like stand up while you're meeting when it's a short thing. So you don't you know, get into a bad pattern of overstretching time. But one way I think that we sometimes think about time unhelpfully is that we think faster is always better. And sometimes going slower is more efficient. And so creating the space in which you can really say the truth so that you don't have to spend six months trying to figure out what's actually going on can be such a helpful way 
to massively ultimately accelerate the work that you're doing. So I really care about how can you create a space in which people can share that more deep and sometimes difficult truth. And so I love starting meetings either with a little bit of silence or a poem. And so the puzzle I want to recommend is a wonderful book of blessings by an Irish poet and who famously, he said, the second best thing he ever did was to become a priest. And the best thing he ever did was to leave the priesthood. <laughs> and his name was John O'Donohue. Is this little book called To Bless the Space Between Us. And it's essentially a book of contemporary blessings for all sorts of different situations that I often turn to if I'm bringing a group together or if I, if I want to set the stage for a different kind of conversation. So it's a little bit of a side, sideward hustle, but I think it can be really helpful. Oh, I'm so excited to go. Jenny's <laughs> like, after. right after. I'm like, like just not letting myself Poem, open my business, browser. I'm in. And anything. <laughs> Poetry. All right. Sign me up. Okay. Well, Casper, this has just been such an honor to have you on our show and such a joy. And thank you so much for everything that you do in the world. And where can folks find you online? Where's the best place? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. So you can find me on social at CasperTK or I think Instagram, it's at CasperTK underscore. And CasperTK.com has the book and various other links to my work. And Sacred Design Lab is at sacred.design. But I, mostly I just hope everyone listening can find the sacred in their own lives in their own way and tap into that space. John O'Donoghue has this wonderful phrase that each of us have a place within us where we have never been wounded. And that's how he thinks about the soul. I, I just love that image. So I hope everyone can find that in this season of celebration and holiday mm. wintertime. <laughs> Thank you, Casper. Thanks, Andy. Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba slash teacher to sign up. It's totally free. 